I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, this is Matt Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of The New European. I just want to take a moment of your time to tell you about something I think is very exciting if you're a fan of The New European and you value what we do. This week, we launched a co-ownership scheme where we're actually offering you, New European readers, listeners, fans, a chance to become a co-owner of the business and help us grow and do more good journalism, which I think is something you'll agree the world needs right now. From just 15 quid up to 15,000 quid, you can invest in our business and benefit from a share of any future success. And there's also a range of great exclusive investor rewards to enjoy. I hope you take a look. In the first three days of the scheme, we've raised more than £600,000 and welcomed more than 800 new co-owners into the business. So why not join them? You'll be helping us fund a sustained marketing campaign to spread the word about the new European and to do more great journalism, just like this podcast. Visit our website for details, theneweuropean.co.uk. Everything you need to know is there. And as with any investment... Remember, capital is at risk. Thanks for listening. I hope you take a look. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than by subscribing. To make that decision easier for you, we have a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just £2 a week. What do you get for £2 a week? You get unlimited digital access. Plus, our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, you can subscribe at www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Now, we are recording this on June the 23rd, 2022. It's the sixth anniversary of the day your best friend ignored all the advice from you, the rest of their friends and all their family, and they married the person you all said, would ruin their life. And it has ruined their life. So, coming up, my excellent new European colleague, Claire Nickenheiler, will take you through her dossier of disaster, the promises that were made about Brexit six years ago, and will be saying whether or not they have come true. And a spoiler for that segment, they have not come true. Later on, we'll be discussing the film and the song titles you can ruin by inserting the word Brexit. And we'll be putting more malevolent ministers, blowhard backbenchers and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. But before we start all that, I I wanted to say something briefly about a story the New European broke this week. It is the extraordinary tale of a very good scoop about Boris Johnson when he was Foreign Secretary wanting to make his then mistress his chief of staff, a role that would be paid for by the taxpayer at the rate of £100,000 a year plus expenses. And the story moved on. We, we told how that story was first turned down by one national newspaper, the Mail on Sunday, which slavishly supports Boris Johnson. And then after appearing in the first edition of another national newspaper, the Times, it was removed 
after process from Downing Street. And I don't want to rehash the, uh, all those stories, apart from to thank Tim Walker for his excellent work on them. But what I want to say about them is this. In what sort of countries does the head of the government, their spouse and their lackeys, phone up a newspaper and demand that a story is dropped, and then it actually is dropped? Would that kind of thing happen in the United States of America, do you think? Would it happen in France? Would it happen in Germany? Where would it happen? Think about those countries where it would happen. And are those the kind of countries we are seeking to be? While you're pondering that, other listeners have been pondering our challenge for this week, ruin a film title or a song title by adding the word Brexit. Thanks to everyone who posted these, we had hundreds of them. We'll do film titles first. Um, and we have many, many uh, of the following, suggested by too many people to mention. Uh, the Good, the Bad and the Brexit. Brexit at Tiffany's. Four weddings and a Brexit. It's a mad, 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 mad Brexit. Others I liked included these. Carol Davis said, Brexit from Russia with love. Nick Phipp, with the new Jurassic Park movie in mind, said, Brexit world, fallen kingdom. Justin Creighton said, a series of unfortunate Brexit events. George Nicholson said, far from the madding Brexit. Mark Neary said, oh, Brexit, where art thou? Jens Backus said Harry Potter and the Chamber of Brexit. Pamela Roberts, the girl with the Brexit tattoo. Paul Delahunty said, dude, where's my Brexit? And L. Adam Foran Lee had two good ones here. Rita Sue and Brexit too. And bring me the Brexit of Alfredo Garcia. Simon Barnes, I spit on your Brexit. Bruce Edwards said, Indiana Jones and the Brexit of Doom. Marina Greenbank, broke back Brexit. Kim Harris said, no country for old Brexit. Andre Rostand said, the unbearable lightness of Brexit. James Foster said, inglorious Brexit. And Tracker O'Neill, I think this is my favourite of the films, Eternal Sunshine of the Brexit Mind. Now, before we go to Claire, Nick and Hyler, a reminder of another brilliant podcast from The New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of the 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. So this is our unhappy anniversary week. It is six years of Brexit. And as Kevin Keegan once famously said when he resigned from a job, uh, saying promises had been made and then not fulfilled, it's not like it said in the brochure. Uh, my excellent new European colleague, Clark Nickenheiler, has been looking at some of those promises for a major piece in this anniversary week. Clark, does the title A Dossier of Disaster give us some clue as to your findings? 
I think it does. We're not doing any uh, subtle journalism here. (laughs) It's quite interesting because it's a bit like waiting for buses, Steve. You know, you wait six years for an honest Brexit bus to come along and then seven come along at once. So the numbers have been piling up in terms of the actual cost of Brexit. Now, for many years or for the past two years at least, this was somewhat um, masked by the whole COVID situation. But over the past weeks, we have been getting more and more research and studies which are actually quantifying the actual cost of Brexit and and it makes for some pretty damning reading. Everything is in the red. Um, The predictions for growth are lower. The predictions for inflation are soaring. The predictions for exports are down. Basically, um, people have now been able to separate into some degree the effects of uh, leaving the European Union, leaving the single market from the slowdown effects of COVID. And it's it's not a good story. It isn't. And and you're right that you know, more and more of this stuff is coming out. We are beginning to be able to separate it from the effects of the pandemic and I guess from the effects of of, of Ukraine too. And more and more people are naming the elephant in the room, aren't they? You know, we've got the Tuesday, we had the heads of Ryanair and EasyJet blaming Brexit squarely for the staffing crisis at airports. Wednesday, you know, we had this study by the LSE and the Resolution Foundation talking about how Brexit's damaged British competitiveness, reduced productivity, left people poorer than they otherwise would have been. Um, Are you surprised that there is still so little talk about it, though? I mean, or little little talk about it from from the, the, the people in charge of it? Not really, because um, their entire uh, administration and governance is based on Brexit being done. They, uh, Boris Johnson's entire um, raison d'etre, if you like, is uh, that he got Brexit done. Now, if Brexit is done, we can't possibly be having these problems, can we? So one of the reasons why this has taken such a long time to emerge, I think, is this kind of culture of emerge on it. If something is, if the problem is no longer there, you can't talk about it. And equally and more damagingly for the United Kingdom, you can't discuss solutions. But I do think this is beginning, this kind of wall of silence is beginning to fracture. And it's not just on, uh, it's not just among the opposition. For example, Stella Creasy, you might have seen, she was Mm. writing for The Observer um, recently. And she said that, uh, you know, Labour need to come out and speak about Brexit now and to, you know, enumerate the consequences and that not discussing it is doing a disservice both to leave and remainer voters. Now, this has always been the problem is that, you know, um, people are so afraid of reopening the divisions of 2016 that it means that everyone is, is scared to actually look Brexit in the face and measure what it has done. People, well, apart from Mike O'Leary of Ryanair, who uh, mm. who did not mince his words, saying the government couldn't run a sweet shop. However, I thought Stella Creasy put it very well. She said, to fix something, you must first name it. And that's the problem. It hasn't been named so far. However, interestingly, what I did think is there's this slight beginnings of a... Um, a, a coming a, a consciousness even among conservatives so for example the candidate who's running for the election in wakefield for the tories has yeah. said that brexit was built on lies that he would support a second referendum and that he regretted voting to leave that's pretty dramatic you also have david davis um a dear friend of Brexit saying now that the reason it's not working, the reason we're not getting the benefits is we have got a remainer's Brexit. Now, whatever you think about the way he's put it, it's an acknowledgement that Brexit is not working. It is not delivering what they said it would deliver, mainly because that was always impossible anyway. But again, Will the government actually do anything about this? Well, they can't as long as Johnson is a prime minister because his whole raison d'etre is that he got Brexit done. How does he want win the next election if Brexit isn't actually done? Yes, it's uh, it's a quite it's quite something, isn't it? I mean, talk about Labour running scared of 2016. Labour, Labour is still running scared of, of 1979 and 1984 <laughs> with what they're saying about the or not saying about the the, the strikes this week. Exactly. Um, 
I never like to think about Boris Johnson naked, but there he is at the start of your piece uh, as the emperor in his new clothes. Uh, he's impaled himself on his own lie, you, you write. Uh, he can't address the manifold problems that plague the country because to admit these problems would be to admit that Brexit is not working. So the naked emperor must continue to stride through the crowds. These promises then, um, I, I do want people to, to read the whole piece. We're not going to go through it all. But a Brexiteer refrain was was take back control of our borders, our laws and our money. I, I lost count of the number of times I heard people saying that in the run up to the referendum and then after the referendum uh, as they defended uh, Brexit. So, let, I mean, let's go in that order. Taking back control of our borders, obviously a key Brexit pledge. It was really played up uh, by the unofficial Leave campaign as well, wasn't it? But the, to the chagrin of, of people like Nigel Farage, um, although he, I don't think he would ever use the phrase chagrin, too, too Frenchy, and to the chagrin of many people who voted Leave, there is still quite a lot of migration uh, to Britain. What, what is all that about? What's happened there? Well, exactly. I mean, um, what's happened is, although EU workers are staying away um, now because we have left the single market and the end of freedom of movement, with all the consequences, the detrimental consequences we're seeing in farming, in the labour shortages in hospitality and at the airports, as you mentioned, Overall, over 600,000 migrants were granted study or work visas in 2021, and that's 40% up on 2019. So what you're getting is you're getting more migrants coming from outside the EU, even though the numbers are down from inside the EU. So the, the effect has not been perhaps what some of those people who voted for leave wanted. If you look at the other side, so that's that's legal migration. But if you look also at illegal uh, um, immigration, if you like, or mm. people who try to come here seeking asylum, refugees, that was also used um, very, um, I don't want to say maliciously, but disingenuously during the Brexit um, vote and in the run up to the vote to scare people about, you know, people coming, taking jobs, they taking the benefits. But neither has that come down even though the UK now controls its borders. In fact, uh, last year, there were 28,500 people who came across the channel. That's three times as many as 2020. Now, Pretty Patel uh, of the Home Office has decided that um, the way to address this is to double down and become more hardline and come up with a new policy to actually outsource the problem. So, Having failed to control the borders, she has now decided that the answer is to send tens of thousands of people to Rwanda. However, this policy has already uh, failed with the first flight. Nobody left on it. It was uh, blocked by the European Court of Human Rights, although, you know, we are now trying to get out of any rulings by the European Court of Human Rights. However, the government says they will continue with this policy. What they aren't doing, even though they do now have control of the borders, but what they aren't doing is using any of these new powers to come up with the safe alternative routes that would actually mm. do something to perhaps make it um, safer for people to come legally and seek shelter in this country. And for example, you know, they talked about controlling their own laws, right? Well, look at the Nationality and Borders Act, which came in yes. recently. And that neither does that create any safe and alternative routes. In fact, it has been condemned by UN um, refugee chiefs as um, undermining international refugee protection. And um, so this new control that the UK um, wanted, that Boris Johnson rather wanted, and that he sold as one of the great benefits of Brexit, has not actually resulted in any of the consequences that they said would happen. The numbers of migrants are not down. The number of um, people coming to work and study here from outside the EU is not down. The only thing that's down is the number of EU workers, and that's why we have strawberries rotting in the fields, pigs being culled, and airports uh full of queues of people unable to get their baggage yeah because uh, because of course you know as our as our uh, our great colleague uh, sooner erdem has pointed out in another piece which is i think is online now at the new european.co.uk a lot of, you know the, the the migrants who are coming in under work and study visas are are, are filling holes in the 
the NHS or they're filling holes in um, IT or they're, you know, or they are, I mean, that's, they're highly skilled workers and, uh, and they are not doing uh, a lot of the uh, not so highly skilled jobs. Um, which uh, which EU workers were doing, uh, which is uh, which is causing a lot of difficulty. You're touching on the, the the laws there. I mean, we take back control of our own laws. The laws that we've brought in. I mean, you mentioned the Nationality and Borders Act. They're not really much to, to boast about, are they? The Elections Act. I know you touch on in your in your uh, in your piece uh, the Policing Act as well, just cracking down on the right to protest. What um, what has taking back control of our own laws meant for for the the Brexit freedoms that that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg are looking into? Well, I think uh, you know everything you need to know about those uh, uh, Brexit freedoms lies in the fact that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his new wonderful role as uh, Minister for Brexit Opportunities. You know, it, it it seems to me it's one of those cases where you're trying too hard if you have to give the ministry a name like that. But he had to go to the Sun newspaper for ideas, and he got nine nine ideas for ways to, for laws to take out, for EU regulations to get rid of. And the most eye-catching of those was to make Hoovers more powerful. I mean, first of all, it's indicative of this whole Brexit project that once the aim was achieved, once they got Brexit done, there is no vision. There is there were no extraordinary policies that had been put in place because this was only ever a project which was at its core intensely political, intensely based internally within the Tory party. And, and this is where you see the paucity of political thinking behind it when you see that he had to go to the sun for his ideas. There is a Brexit freedom bill, which has been touted as this bonfire of EU uh, law. So it's supposed to, you know, save one billion pounds over uh, four years by cutting 1,500 EU laws or what they call retained laws, which remain on the statute book. But the think tank UK and a change in Europe said this is a recipe for chaos because you're just going to be cutting so many laws at the same time there is not going to be enough uh, time given to the you know to the detailed thinking of what this will mean across society or across the industries and this at a time when uh one of Boris Johnson's most recent uh, you know oh look over there policies was that he's going to cut thousands of jobs from the civil service so you know it, it's not exactly taking back control but then you know much of this project was never about taking back control. I mean, that was the slogan. But what we've had, it appears, since 2016 is just chaotic manoeuvre out of chaotic manoeuvre. And then these kind of back of the envelope policies being thrown out there every now and then. Oh, we are doing something. But it's not like there seems to be an overarching vision. Now, taking back control of our money, um, you write, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting you a lot in this piece because, uh, in this podcast rather, because this is such a great piece full of great uh, lines. This is a great line. Those who support Brexit will say COVID is to blame and indeed the pandemic is responsible for some of the slowdown. But if anything, the COVID lockdowns only serve to temporarily mask the effects of Brexit. And as we all know, the masks are now off. What sort of state is the economy in against where um, the experts project it would have been had we stayed in the EU? Well, I think one of the most interesting reports recently was one created by the Centre for European Reform on on precisely this. And their um, director, John Springford, basically put together what are called doppelgangers. So he sort of, by putting together um, a basket of economies that are similar to the UK, Mm. he was able to estimate where the UK economy would have been now um, since 2016 if we had not left EU. And he found that growth would be just over 5% lower. Now that, that, that's equal to 31 billion lost. And investment, um, he found, was down over 13%. The reason why that's important is, is if investment now is down, then you're not building for the future. You know, this high wage, a high productive economy that we were, we were promised, a sort of Singapore on the Thames, mm. the, the money is not going in to create that. He also found that trade in goods was down by by around 13% as well. We've also lost, um, the, the Treasury has lost revenues of in the region of between 
30 and 40 billion pounds. And, and, and again, this is now being calculated as a cost of Brexit. And again, another consequence has been that taxes now are at the highest percentage of gross domestic products since the 60s. And now this is despite uh, Johnson promising clearly in his manifesto in 2019 not to raise taxes um, in national insurance, VAT or income tax for five years to put money back in people's pockets. The problem is that the cost of Brexit is now hitting the Treasury and so those taxes have to come up to fill that gap. That's one study, but there are other studies as well. And the overall kind of conclusion is that growth is definitely lower. Johnson, of course, explains this by saying, we came out of the pandemic quicker because we ended lockdowns earlier because we had a better vaccination campaign. So now our growth is going to be slower, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And other economies are rebounding quicker. In fact, the OECD has predicted that the UK now will have the worst growth in the G20, apart from Russia, which is under sanctions and at war. So I think, you know, the figures are starting to become less deniable, if you like, although I'm sure the government will continue to try and deny them. And going hand in hand with taking back control of, of our money was what we were going to spend the money on when, when we got it back. How, how much a week were we going to give to the NHS, Claire? And, and has, how, has that actually happened? Well, it was 350 million <laughs> for the NHS, as everybody probably remembers. And in fact, uh, Johnson kind of doubled down on that in 2017 yes. when he was foreign minister and said, oh, actually, 438 million would have been more accurate, which you have to admire the man for his uh, commitment. However, other people, for example, the fact-checking organisation Full Fact had looked at this and said that it was more likely, the savings from the EU membership were more likely to be about 250 million a week and so 13 billion a year because the, the Johnson and, and the Brexit campaigners uh, campaigning did not take into account the rebate that was negotiated by Margaret Thatcher. Jacob Rees-Mogg says this money is being spent on the NHS, but there is not much evidence of that um, because only recently the Chancellor Rishi Sunak had to bring in a national insurance tax right to help the NHS and social care, of course. So there, there isn't much evidence that this money is actually going into the NHS and the NHS needs funding, not least because of the um, impact, obviously, of the COVID uh, pandemic, but also it's losing staff and it's losing staff because of Brexit. So 22,000 EU nationals have left since 2016 and there's been a precipitous drop in the number of new nurses registering for um, from the EU in the NHS. So it, it would not appear that the NHS is a big uh, winner from Brexit at this time. Yes, and uh, I mean, there is even, even a figure of a, an extra one billion uh, a week going into the NHS, which uh, which was being bandied about by, I think Grant Shapps has mentioned it. What it's got to do with him, I don't know. Um, and maybe, and Sajid uh, Javid has, has weighed in too. And and that is, that's in a Brexit benefits document, uh, which I think Michael Gove produced, uh, which said by 2024, 25, extra 1 billion a week would be going into the, the health service coffers uh, against uh, against what was going in, in in 2016. But I mean, this is, you know, it's a not it's a nonsensical figure. It takes into account the money that is is basically uh, going out to uh, to private companies who who run little bits of the uh, of, of NHS services. Um, so I mean, that's that's a, a, a disaster area. Trade with the EU and the struggles of farming since Brexit are disaster areas. We've covered those fairly in depth on on recent podcasts. I did want to just touch on fishing though, because that is another sort of totemic pledge for Brexiteers. Michael Gove, of course, that was what drove him into the Brexit camp in the first place. He said his father's fishing uh, or his stepfather rather's uh, fishing business had been decimated by the the European Union. Um, so this, there was this notion that we would reclaim our fish and that they would they would be happier fish, uh, as Jacob Rees-Mogg promised. W what are the headlines on fishing? Well, in a way, this is this is one of the the greatest betrayals, perhaps. Yes. I mean, you know, the whole dossier it could be a dossier of betrayal as well as a dossier mm -hmm. of uh, disasters, but because 
fishers were such strong backers of Brexit. And, you know, you really got a sense that many felt that this had to be done in order to save the industry. However, they, they, the figures don't add up now. Um, Johnson, when he was uh, making a speech in 2020, uh, you know, that we'd now left the EU, he promised that the UK share of fish in its waters would rise from half to nearly two thirds in about five years. But the National Federation of Fisher Organisations has said now that the bulk of the fishing fleet will see losses of about 64 million a year, up to 300 million pounds a year by 2026, unless, you know, um, the terms of the agreement are changed. And I, um, when I was researching the piece, I found uh, this all parliamentary uh, group report on fisheries, which makes for terrible reading, really. It's, it's, it, it has a lot of testimony from fishers, from or fishing organisations across the country. And it's a terrible story. They call it themselves a perfect storm of, you know, too much paperwork, labor shortages and financial difficulties. People who have been who have had, you know, fishers and skippers in their families for generations, they're getting out of the business, they're selling their boats, customer, they're not able to be part of the um, industry organizations because they can't afford the levies, which are minuscule and customers are being lost because uh, seafood uh, customers on the continent are being lost because of extra uh, regulations, logistical barriers. Um, and, and finally, a study in February found that the increase per year to um, in terms of the share of fish for UK fishers was just just tiny, a tiny bit above 100,000 tonnes. So certainly not the hundreds of thousands of tonnes that they were promised. And from reading the report, you get a real sense of the kind of desperation of people who, who, who really trusted this government to have their interest as hard. And unfortunately, not to put be punning too much but the scales have fallen from their eyes in a way now i'll try and ignore that pun by the way <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know snowflake remainers uh like us we do like to say that a lot of brexit was about looking back uh to to a future you know, back to to, to, a, to a past a, a rose tinted view of the past uh, a past that may not really have existed in the way that brexit is portrayed it but I did want to end by looking at three ideas uh, of Brexiteers that really did look to the future and what you've discovered about them. And, and they were the ideas that Brexit would free Britain to be a science superpower, that it would revitalise the union and make the union stronger. And I mean, it was two years before the, the referendum, wasn't it, that, um, that you know there was a narrower than expected win for, uh, uh, well, a, a narrower than expected vote against independence for Scotland. So we, we'd be a science superpower, we'd have a stronger union, and then we would be a global force once again, we would be global Britain. So on science first then, just tell me about uh, Horizon Europe and, and why that is so worrying to scientists. So Horizon Europe is this um, multi-billion euro funding program for research and innovation. And um, science, back in 2020, scientists were really worried that they were going to lose um, their participation in that because many British scientists, they their research comes was funded by Horizon Europe, but also they used to work with scientists in Europe and often lead projects in Europe as part of Horizon Europe. So when it was agreed that the UK would retain associate membership of Horizon Europe, scientists were delighted because this meant they can continue their research on, into things like malaria or physics, all these global problems that need, you know, a lot of very clever brains working together on them. However, that associate membership has not been ratified and it's all tied up with the never-ending row about the Northern Ireland Protocol because as long as that is not settled, the EU will not ratify the associate membership. And, you know, you can put blame maybe on both sides, but scientists have pleaded with both sides to sort of decouple science from the political argument, but it's not moving forward. So at the moment, they're still waiting. But um, when I did a piece about this a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago, the, uh, some of the scientists I were talking to were saying that eventually 
um, the UK will get tired of trying to negotiate on this and will then try and come up with an alternative. And they've already sketched this out, saying that they wanted to create a bold global Britain science and discovery plan, which is all very well and good. But science is a collaborative enterprise. And if UK scientists are not able to collaborate with their European counterparts, then all the world is going to be worse off. And unfortunately, with the uh, ongoing stalemate over the Northern Ireland Protocol, that is what looks likely to happen at the moment. And that kind of takes in uh, the, the, the Union as well, doesn't it? I mean, you're from you're from the west of Southern Ireland, I think. I mean, from a personal view, how how are you? How are you and people you know viewing the the, the haggling over the protocol, and and what are their fears about all of this? I think the hanging over the protocol is a sort of indication that when this Brexit project was thought up, not enough attention was given to Northern Ireland and how to make sure that Northern Ireland would be protected in a future, um, you know, a Britain outside of the single market, outside of the European Union. And nothing that has been done so far has really changed that view. Um, And it's quite extraordinary that the most vulnerable place in the United Kingdom is the one that seems to be being bandied around for political gain and endangering the, you know, with all of this endangering the Good Friday Agreement, which, you know, it's just not not just a piece of paper. It did bring an end to 30 years of violent conflict with cost at least 3,000 lives. And it's it's quite disturbing to see this, this situation, this delicate political situation in Northern Ireland, you know, and, and to see it being used for political gain. And that's the impression one gets because the Northern Irish Protocol was drawn up um, by Johnson and his team in order to try and get around the difficulty of, of, of the, you know, avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland. But now they're saying they don't want it anymore. And they're saying that they need to gut parts of that protocol. In, and they say that it's in order to bring the unionists back into the Stormont Regional Assembly because that government has been stalled for some time. But the unionists have said they aren't definitely going to go back to Stormont because of this bill because they don't essentially trust Johnson anymore. So what we see is that we're now starting on a new row with Brussels with the threat of a trade war. And once again, placing this tinderbox of Northern Ireland at the centre of what some might say is is a blatant attempt by one man to keep his political career on track by appealing to the most hardline elements of his party. And that, I think, is very disappointing. And I think that people in Northern Ireland and, you know, I wouldn't want to presume, but I think if you look at the recent local elections, you see the growth of support for not just the national Sinn Féin, but also alliance more moderate parties, people are starting to maybe think of other ways of being, you know, and other people who can answer their needs. And the idea of global Britain, I mean, this is this is, again, a, a very, very telling point that, that you make uh, when you write in his January 2020 speech. Johnson hailed the birth of a Britain that is truly global in our range and our ambitions. Um, and you point out that there is a, a flaw with with declaring that we are truly global in our range and ambitions. W- what is that flaw? Well, I mean, you only control your ambitions, right? Exactly. I mean, I can say I would like to be a Formula One driver, and that's all well and good. But, you know, Lewis Hamilton is not giving me the seat in his car anytime soon, is he? Especially not with my driving. But um, I think, you know, and, and there's something almost tragicomic in the way that we are constantly fed this rhetoric about global Britain. And to be fair, um, Johnson has been very active, if if you like, in terms of the war of Ukraine. However, I would dispute his claims that he is leading the West or bringing the West together. He is certainly traveling to Kiev a lot. He is certainly providing a lot of weapons, but he is still seemingly 
isolated because you see the images of him with Zelensky, but then a couple of days later, you see the French president, Emmanuel Macron, you see with the Italian, uh, Mario Draghi and uh, German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, all together visiting Zelensky. That's a powerful image. And if you juxtapose both of those images, I think you get closer to the truth than the rhetoric we are being fed. And, you know, this idea of a global Britain leading the world, it's quite difficult because even the relationship with, with the US, um, a traditional ally, is still being to some degree poisoned by Brexit and the continuing row over Northern Ireland because... Um, President Joe Biden, with his uh, Irish family um, ancestry, is very adamant that the protocol and Northern Ireland must be protected. And this has obviously, um, you know, calcified relationships with the Johnson administration, especially given, you know, that they've now taken another uh, drastic intervention with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which they have now introduced, which puts everything up in the air again. So... Johnson can stride about and can say that he is leading the West in the response to the Ukraine, but Britain is no longer at the table. And I think that's where you have a gap between range, you know, what you think your range is and what and what your ambitions are. So there we are. It is, in fact, a dossier of disaster. Thank you so much for, uh, for uh, going through that with me. I mean, in putting this together, just before I let you go, did it confirm your expectations or, or is it actually worse than, than than you thought at the start? I think I was somewhat surprised that the figures are now becoming so definitive. Mm. Um, it, it does seem to be harder to deny the overall uh, drastic effect on the economy. And it was, as I said, hidden for some time by COVID. And I don't want to say that there has been no COVID impact at all. Of course, all, all of the research and studies, you know, take that into account. I think what surprises me most is not just the scale of the problem, but the fact that the government still refuses to acknowledge it and continues to sell us cheap lines like fastest growing economy or world beating or you know world beating immigration system at some point you have to acknowledge the truth hopefully because Otherwise, the UK is going to be stuck in what um, one um, eminent analyst, uh, Chris Gray, who's a professor, emeritus professor, he does a very good Brexit blog, um, he calls it a poria, which is sort of, you can't go backwards, you can't go forwards, and you're stuck, but it's not stasis particularly either, because the context is changing around you all the time, but the UK is unable to adapt, move or do anything because of a failure to acknowledge what's really happening. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the data, but I'm more surprised at the absolute, you know, uh, the attitude the government is taking to it in just ignoring the consequences. Well, there you go. My brilliant colleague, Clarny uh, Hanaila. Uh, you can read uh, Clark's Dossier of Disaster by subscribing to The New European. It is just £1 a week for digital, £2 a week for print and digital. Uh, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Before we go to the Hall of Shame, uh, here are a few song titles you can ruin by adding the word Brexit. Thanks to everyone who wrote in uh, with these. We had hundreds of them, as I say. Marina Greenbank uh, says, we're lost in Brexit, caught in a trap. Pat Eggleton says, you never give me your Brexit money. Uh, and Martin Hardwidge uh, continues the Beatles theme with the long and winding Brexit. Uh, Martin Hardwidge also sent in one on a dead Kennedy's theme, too drunk to Brexit, if only uh, we had been. Helen Parry, a fan of Michael McDonald, presumably, says, what a Brexit fool believes. Rob McArdle says, oh, Brexit, I'm not your daddy. Carmen Hope says, don't go Brexit, my heart. Sue Fortune says, it's my Brexit party, and I'll cry if I want to. 
and Joshua O'Neill recalls Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's classic, Ain't No Brexit Hard Enough. Tartan Lady came up with all of these. Bridge over troubled Brexit. I can't get no Brexit satisfaction. Tears on my Brexit. Tainted Brexit. When Brexit doves cry and the total eclipse of the Brexit. And Michael Cowell, who, like me, loves the work of the man from Duluth, says, oh, mama, can this really be the end to be stuck inside of Mobile with the Brexit blues again? Thanks for all of those. Uh, A quick reminder before the Hall of Shame, Series 1, Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts are available now. They tell the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bites. You can find them wherever you got this episode. Just search for Great European Lives Podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame. Uh, This is the home, as you know, for blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally. Anne Widdicombe is always in the Hall of Shame, but this week she really has surpassed herself in her abysmal, wretched column in the apocalyptically terrible Daily Express. Anne Widdicombe writes, I realise this will upset the whinging sisterhood, but I am sick to the back teeth of reading about the menopause. She continues, pretty well, all women go through it. Hot flushes in middle age scarcely merit the hysterical press they are getting. Well, I think the effects uh, of the menopause for quite a lot of people are uh, much more serious than hot flushes in middle age. Uh, Mrs. Empathy continues, employers must now make sure offices are cool. They must be sympathetic to mood swings. They must let employees discuss the subjects at work. An HRT shortage is generating headlines big enough for the second coming. There is, of course, an obvious answer. Don't bother employing menopausal women. Is that what we really want? Just get on with it, dears. Incredible stuff, isn't it? Uh, and Wickham also writes uh, in the same column in the Daily Express, she also writes, woke culture threatens not just freedom of speech, but the very structure of our language, the plural they, simply cannot refer to a single person. It is grammatical nonsense. Not really, because when we are talking about Anne Widdicombe's brain cells, like I am now, I'm using the plural they, uh, even though it's apparent that Anne Widdicombe only has one brain cell. Now, like everyone else, I very much enjoyed the RMT General Secretary Mitt Lynch's TV appearances this week, a man who's able to give a spirited, articulate defence of his position uh, when Richard Madeley's demanding to know whether he's a Marxist, Piers Morgan's demanding to know whether he's a Thunderbird supervillain, Kay Burley is demanding to know whether he'll instruct his, instruct his pickets to beat up old ladies. Um, so... Uh, Red Wall Tory Jonathan Gullis is back in the Hall of Shame as a result of uh, Mick Lynch. Uh, As a reward uh, for his spirited cheerleading from Boris Johnson, Jonathan Gullis uh, was sent into battle with Lynch uh, on uh, on TV. Uh, The evidence of the beating that Jonathan Gullis took is all over the internet. I really did enjoy, though, uh, Jonathan Gullis Uh, arguing that train strikes were going to wreck net zero targets uh, by forcing more cars back onto the road. Uh, Is Jonathan Gullis the Greta Thunberg of Stoke-on-Trent? Well, maybe, maybe not, uh, because on the 12th of October 2020, Jonathan Gullis voted against making ministers take the targets of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2020, by 2050 rather, uh, uh, when taking action, including setting up agricultural subsidy schemes. And on February the 5th, 2020, Jonathan Gullis voted against making the government develop and implement a plan to eliminate the majority of transport emissions by 2030. So Jonathan Gullis's concern for net zero uh, seems to be uh, because it's on his list of talking points that he was handed uh, just before going into the studio, rather than based on his record. Mike Parry's in the Hall of Shame. Uh, in his second TV appearance of the week, Mike Parry told viewers of the Jeremy Vine show uh, that despite the CEOs of Ryanair and EasyJet saying Brexit had plenty to do with airport chaos, Brexit in fact had nothing to do with airport chaos. Uh, that was just as valid as the point Mike made in his previous TV appearance of the week 
when he told uh, Good Morning Britain viewers this. He said, people have died wearing flip-flops. Flip-flops have been uh, a cause of death. The problem is that flip-flops are really just a thong on your foot. Uh, David Davis is in the Hall of Shame. The former Brexit secretary said both sides in the 2016 referendum had underestimated the impact of Brexit upon the island of Ireland. And it's just not true, that is it? Because on June the 9th, a couple of weeks before the vote, uh, I remember well John Major and Tony Blair shipping up in Derry. Uh, they said that Brexit would not only threaten the stability uh, of the island of Ireland, but it would weaken the union. Uh, and at the time they were saying that, David Davis was saying that sorting out the Irish border would be relatively easy. Kate Hoey was saying Brexit won't hurt Northern Ireland. Instead, it will Brexit uh, brighten its future. And everyone else said Major and Blair were Project Fear. And in fact, Major and Blair turned out to be Project Understatement. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Lord David Frost, who made another long evidence-free speech about you-know-what, and it began like this. Is Brexit working? I don't think I will surprise any of you if I cut to my conclusion straight away. Yes, Brexit is working. We have no cause for regrets about the decision this country has taken. And I don't know what to say about that other than simply, well, go and ask the farmers. Uh, if they have any cause for regrets about the decision the country is taking. Go and ask the fishermen. Go and ask people who work on the borders. Go and ask people queuing up at airports. Go and ask small businesses. Go and ask the NHS. Go and ask just about everybody outside of your little bubble, David. And once again, we're left to ponder the question, what colour is the sky in Lord David Frost's world? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Eleanor Long and Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe and you can give us lovely reviews, nice ratings too. You can join our Facebook readers group. On Twitter, you can follow us at The New European or me at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And so until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.